Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 343 Podcast, where we work tirelessly to elevate the level of discourse and practitionership here in American soccer, because Lord knows we desperately need it. Today, I've got a multi-decade-long practitioner based out of Japan, Tom Beyer. He's American, but Japan has been his home for 38 years. As I was writing this intro, which is the only thing I ever script, it occurred to me, what exactly is a practitioner? For me, anyway, there's that cliche of, I know one when I see one, but I don't really like that, and I know more clarity can go a long way. I mean, is it a coach at the pro level? A coach at the elite youth level, a coach at the rec level, a personal trainer, a scout, an assistant, or could it be a technical director? How about a general manager or chief operating officer? How about this one? Is a player a practitioner? Is that a practitioner in the sense we're speaking of? How about a broadcaster or someone who reports on the game? Or maybe a YouTuber or influencer? Are those practitioners? Get this. How about some bureaucrat pencil pusher in an office or a lawyer at some club or business? What do you say about that? Are they practitioners? It starts getting quite murky, doesn't it? And because of that, this is a topic I will at some point tackle. For today, rest assured, Tom is indeed a practitioner. Now, I want to make something abundantly clear. If one wants to elevate their level of discernment within the totality of a market, one needs to elevate their level of understanding across all aspects of that market. Both breadth and depth matter. So for instance, if you're currently concerned with the youth game, you can't understand it without understanding the pro game. And if you're currently concerned with the pro game, you can't understand it without also understanding the machinations behind it, including youth. Tom is a practitioner who, in my estimation, has assessed things on a fairly global scale and long ago chose to zoom in to the very beginning of the player pipeline. That said, in this episode, we touch on a number of things. Here's a list. What is the tangible impact of culture on how good a player or nation can be? What did U.S. soccer do or not do to place us in these less than great situations we've been living with? We also talk about the rise of the Japanese men and women's programs, Corver coaching, isolated training without pressure, and how those things are easily misunderstood. Neuroscience even makes an appearance in this episode and what it seems to say about development, among other golden nuggets. Now, whether we agree or disagree on things, it's always a pleasure to speak with people who have actually worked within a space, thought deeply and consistently about it for decades, adjusted their priors, had setbacks, retooled, evolved, and leveled up. All, of course, which is part of the journey. The pleasure comes from sensing that they have put in the work, real work, and consequently that their opinions, right or wrong as they may be, are not superficial. Then, for me anyway, it's pleasurable trying to get to the bottom of why they believe the things they believe. On that note, if you're a coach or a parent of a youth player, it's imperative you get legitimate gold in your coaching education or parent education from actual multi-decade practitioners who have done unprecedented work and have been there and done that at every level, from recreational to professional player development. Really quick, the following two products which sponsor this episode do exactly that. For coaches, 
There are both free and premium programs at 343coaching.com. You can join the thousands of coaches who have taken the program and transformed themselves and their teams into standouts of their very own. Guys, stop guessing, hopping around, experimenting on a weekly, monthly, or even yearly basis with different drills or ideas you happen to come across. I know you do it. I've done it. We all do it. But at some point, you've got to pop out of that perpetual tinkering that is a waste of time and focus. Go to 343coaching.com and grab the methodology that actually works in the American soccer environment. You'll get to see and hear an outlier coach who helped pioneer a transformation in American soccer, train his actual youth teams and players, where the coaching you will see and hear is not scripted in any way, and the success of the teams and its players is not fabricated. Again, the word of the day is focus. Direct your focus and energy into the program, and we can't wait to hear your testimonial about how you and your team has taken a massive leap forward. Oh, and if you happen to be coaching the little ones in the 7v7 format, we've got you covered there as well. For that, go to 7v7coaching.com. Last but absolutely not least, parents, we're reopening the masterclass for you very soon, so make sure you are on the email list when we make the announcement. You can find that at 343masterclass.com. Okay, I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Tom Beyer. Here we go. Tom, how are you? Good to see you. I'm pretty good, man. I'm pretty good. And yourself? I'm okay. I'm actually excited to talk to you because I've known of you forever. And I know you've been on the pod with John on a couple occasions. Yep. Uh, several years ago. And it's, it's our first time, as far as I recall, to actually see each other face to face. That's right. And I'm a big admirer of your work, dude. Um, wow. Oh, and, and I've been wanting to get you on here with myself for a long time. And for one reason or another, I never reached out. Yeah. You know, we get busy. You get super busy. I get super busy. The soccer world is 24-7. And I think your message, I want to do the best I possibly can to distill it to our audience. I know there's a lot of overlap in our audiences, sure. but sure. there, I'm sure there isn't to a certain degree. And I want them hooked on, on what it is that you're saying. So I don't know the way, just a little preface here, Tom, if you don't mind. Sure. The way I like to do the podcast are freestyle, free form. It's as if you're in my home or I'm in your home and we're just having to talk about football versus an interview. If sure. that makes sense. I don't have a list of questions here where I'm like, okay, Tom, tell me about this or tell me about that. Yep. I just want to have a football conversation with you. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's great. So that's my preamble. Let's chat a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it as well. As you know, I mean, I've been an admirer of yours and your brothers from uh, afar, um, the 343 um, concept. Um, and I'm just for, I'm just always, I'm always interested to to learn. I'm I'm always being kind of, most of my work is I'm being brought in to learn from, but the reality is I'm secretly learning as much or more uh, from everybody else. So I, I, I really uh, looking forward to this chat because um, I know what, what you guys are doing as well is, uh, is really great work. Cool, man. So I'll try and drive us or to get us started. And then sure. wherever you want to take it, take sure. it. And I'm going to try to drill down a little bit. Yeah. And it's not that I'm picking at you. Sure. I just really sincerely want to get to the bottom of things. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. 
maybe I can start with this. Yep. My perception of your work and how it fits in the overall landscape, and I'm looking at it from the American soccer perspective, okay, sure. is you're looking at the very beginning stages of a human being's development in the game. Yes. Uh, and that is something that, you know, Brian, myself, or the company 343, that's, that's not our wheelhouse. You know, yeah. our wheelhouse is mostly, hey, once you get started in competitive club team soccer, whether yeah. that be at U10, U9, U12, whatever that number happens to be, okay, let us help you in that respect. And so I think there might be still a little bit of confusion in the marketplace here in the United States, yeah. whereby where you're teaching a lot of ball mastery work at the earliest of ages, such that when they get to somebody like us, yes, they are well equipped yes. to take the lessons that we have or other coaches have and run with it and really accelerate their development in that respect. But I think there still is a lot of confusion, Tom, sure. here in the States where they think maybe what it is that you're professing is yep. what should be done for, I don't know, a longer, I don't, I don't even know how to express it. I, I think you know what I'm getting at though. Maybe sure. I'll, I'll just let you start communicating as to what your focus and emphasis is on. Yep. And then maybe I'll, I'll jump in here and there. Yeah. Well, no, you're hitting on the right, uh, the, the right areas here well, in, in a, a real kind of elevator pitch, so to speak, right? Is that. I believe that if you can get a child comfortable with the ball at their feet way before they cross over that imaginary line, which is organized play, that that child is going to really take off. That once you build those foundational basic building block of the component of the technical part, that's when and only when you're really set up to what we call scaffolding and scaffolding into learning the more complex, difficult movements, both technically and then obviously, you know, a lot of the other components of being a top player are byproducts of having a very strong foundational building blocks at the very base. And so a lot of the stuff that I'm kind of preaching is it's not theoretical stuff. It's without saying arrogant, I know what I know because I've kind of done it. I've seen it. I had a, a really rude awakening from this whole thing because, as you may or may not know, I, I was very instrumental in bringing this Curver program to Japan. And that's another area, too, where we could spend an hour talking about because it's a very misunderstood philosophy and methodology because there's different kind of levels of, it, of interpretation of the Dutch master Will Curver. There's a lot of people going around pretending to be, or at least representing the work of Will, but Will's work um, is really uh, revolutionary. He, it was really basically, he believed that the teaching of individual technical skill development could really impact player development, but there's different levels of it. And in particular, what we did here, and I'm not here to promote Curva. I fell, I'm at, I'm, I haven't been involved in that work for 15 years but I was instrumental in introducing it here in Japan. And Japan, interestingly enough, 
is probably, well, not probably, it's by far the, the, the only program in the world that has become very commercialized. It's a massive business here. There's over 150 schools. When I say schools, these are, they're focused on children between the ages of six and 12. And there's over 20,000 kids at any given time that are in this program. But the difference is between the program here and a program in the United States couldn't be more apples to oranges. In America, it's more of the kind of the marketing scheme of the images you conjure up as a bunch of kids in a line doing step over moves, running at a cone. And that's a lot of it that because those are coaches that never really studied and learned and they're not full-time coaches. A lot of them are applying their, they're, they're feeding themselves from, you know, being a school teacher or maybe even a, a lawyer or a policeman, whatever it is. But here we went through it a different way. And basically everybody that works in the business here is a full-time professional person who works at the schools. So what I saw was, but then this was the kind of the, the, the awakening of me as well, is that I started to realize and connect some dots after working in the business for 15 years. And, and what, what it was, was that these don't function as club teams. What they function is, is providing a solution to a big problem. And that is, is that a lot of players, when they go, you know, football development is their hit and a miss, depending upon where you're going to live is going to depend upon the quality of the coaches that you have available. So what I, we were see, what I was seeing was, is that the lack of technical ability here. And so a lot of co a lot of kids are being coached, even here in Japan. The funniest thing about Japan is, and we'll talk about that maybe later, is that the coaching is very, very low level here. It's this, this is not, there's no genius coaching going on in Japan, but this is a country that's very conducive to developing players because of discipline, repetition, and things like that. That's why the Kerber stuff fit in perfectly in Japan, where it wouldn't mm -hmm. fit in other countries. Okay. But what, what we did was we, we, I knew that kids were being coached by volunteer fathers or volunteer co parents and that they didn't have that technical component. So what we did was come up with an idea solution where kids could come to these schools Monday to Friday, just once a week, and they could get more of a technical training, more focused on, you know, ball mastery, more focused on learning, you know, uh, change of direction moves, moves to beat a player's 1v1, stopping and starting. And then 50% is just playing mini games. And they were all housed at, at futsal facilities because we have thousands of them here. And it was also, to be honest with you, to take advantage of the opportunity of building a business around it because in 1993, the J League was born and also the JFA put their hand in the air to become the 2002 World Cup uh, uh, host. So football was everywhere. And we just so happened to launch our, our school program in 93 as well. But then what I started to notice was I realized that best kids in our school, they already came to our schools and they were all already pretty good. Kind of like, you know, we would say with the academies, professional academies. And this is why sometimes and people misinterpret it because I'm a huge fan. My favorite players, Messi, Xavi, Iniesta. But what I say is, because I'm trying to get people to think differently, is I have a pretty good feeling these guys were pretty good before they showed up at the Barcelona Academy or whatever academy. It could be Byron. It could be, it could be any of them, right? So my whole concept and my whole belief is, is that when you look at the two, there's 211 countries that make up FIFA. They call them member associations. So when I started doing a little research and I wanted to figure out, well, why is there only, well, first of all, only eight countries on the men's side 
uh, that have won a World Cup tournament. And we're talking out of 90 years, man. We're talking out of 22 World Cup tournament. And then when you factor in that out of, out of those eight, only three other countries have even made it to a final of a World Cup. It's a very exclusive group. And then even if you drill down more, uh, it's only a couple of serial repeat winners, right? So when I started studying those, those, those countries, I wanted to figure out, did they have more coaches or better trained coaches, better curriculums, better elite player pathways, better facilities? And I came up with the common thread was, is that those countries' culture of development started way earlier than everybody else's because they have football cultures. So again, circling back to the elevator pitches, and I found this also with my own children, is that if you can get kids comfortable, at least in ball mastery, and when I say comfortable, they can control the ball with their foot. They, they, they're not constantly chasing the ball. They're not constantly kicking the ball. They've mastered the ball under no pressure where they're able to actually have fun. And, and when I also started studying the great players of the world, I found out or figured out they didn't really fall in love with football. They fell in love with the ball first. So the ball became the center of their development, right? And then I saw with my own kids that once my kid, by the age of six, were, you know, I passed them over that line into organized play. And then I was pretty much a, a hands-off father, coach. And then I realized that if you can get kids really, really skilled at ball mastery, that love of the ball, love to practice, love to train, love to have the ball at their feet, you know, they're not trying to hide. They just want the ball. They want to become selfish with the ball. I found that even paired with the inexperienced volunteer dad coach, that kid usually develops, at least up until the age of 12, where they can be passed on to a better coach that can now start teaching them combination play. How do I involve a, a teammate? How do I create space? How do I look for, you know, different patterns? How do I move players by using the ball? And, and then I just realized that you're obviously going to be at a much more, dis at much more advantage if you develop players like that. So here's, and I do a lot of work around the world. I work with, with countries, with federations, trying to lift their overall kind of level. And I joke around nowadays and I say, listen, my philosophy could fit on a, on a, on a dinner napkin because here it is. Develop an army of little boys and girls who are skilled at ball mastery by five or six years of age. And then the old, the old saying of just let them play actually tends to work. So in the beginning, when I saw my son, I had passed my oldest son, who was very good technically in the beginning. And when I passed him over the line into organized play, at first I was kind of pulling my hair out because his first ever coach was a volunteer father of a girl, seven girls on my son's team. He was a volunteer coach and he didn't know much about football. So at first I was kind of pulling my hair out because at the time I was still on national TV every day, like promoting, you know, technical skill development. My DVDs were bestsellers. I was going around the country doing these huge events. And my kid is stuck with a coach who knew little to nothing about football. But then, <clears throat> click. And then a couple of years later, <clears throat> I, 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 I figured this out. I started thinking, you know what? This guy is a master coach for my son. I couldn't have had him in a better environment. And the reason why is, is because my, if I take my professional hat off and put my, my parents' hat on, I loved it because my son was very popular on the team. He became the number 10 on the team. Uh, he became the captain of the team. And the coach didn't overcoach him. He just let him play. So when I started to see these, you know, these experiences in my own family and also 
for many years, I got married late in life, 42, had my first son at 46. So I was always coaching other people's kids. So then, and we can get into this, so I'll come up for a little breath and you can uh, challenge me or talk to me about um, what I've said up until now. But then I really had an awakening because I started seeing that, oh my goodness, these kids that are really good technically with the ball at their feet, even paired with an inexperienced coach, they seem to be developing. And then also the other thing was, is that here in Japan, they overtrain. They practice too much, way too much. But that's cultural. Culture, and what is culture? I define culture as a community, a club, a nation, a group, a family that share the same values and beliefs. And so here in Japan, when you join a sports team, and they specialize here, I'll be completely direct, they specialize here, right? If you join a football team or soccer, you play soccer uh, 365 days. You join a baseball team, it's the same thing. But, you know, the reality is, is that the culture allows that when your little six-year-old joins your team or my team, that that little six-year-old is going to be required to train four times a week, two to three hours a day, uh, a, a session. And when you get a little older, they play a ridiculous amount of training matches here in Japan. I'd say over 100 to 150. So when you, when you hear that, you say, oh, my God, that's way too much. But no, this whole idea of like burnout, you know. Burnout doesn't come from too much play if it's self-chosen. Burnout comes from the structure, the expectations, and things like that. So now I'm, I'm even learning now, starting to think that, because someone read it, wrote an article recently about Japanese football, about the amount, how they're immersed, and how much they play in games in high school. And yeah, they play a lot here, but it's not, it, it's not like we have in America where like trophies and medals, and you know, we don't even have that. I don't think any of my kids have ever amassed even one trophy or one medal in their entire career here. Because they're playing. So it's a different culture. But anyway, that's, I hope I didn't uh, talk too much, but that's, a, you know, that's the kind of philosophy that I have. So, I mean, I, I try to make it very simple and I tell parents, you know, th that's the other thing too, is really parents are the adversaries in America, right? I mean, most people involved in soccer in America they don't like the parents are around. They don't want them to interact with their kids. Of course not, because they're paying thousands of dollars and their kid is crap. And I hate to say, it, I don't want to use that word, but it, their kid is not good. So of course there's a frustration. And then you have a parent that has no idea what development even looks like. And of course that's going to spawn or, 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 or develop, you know, a, a, an army of parents who are screaming on the sidelines. Um, so anyway, that's just the beginning of my, uh, no, good. My no, it's fantastic. No, it's fantastic, Tom. And it's self-evident that you have a reservoir of experience here because without that experience, it's very difficult to just flow as you just flowed from topic to topic to topic and yeah. admitting, Hey, I thought this, and now I think this, and this is, these are the reasons why I think this. And you tap into your personal experience, which is quite abundant. I want to touch a little bit on Japan. Obviously, you're there. You've lived there for many, many, many years, decades, if I'm not mistaken. Years. Yeah, 38 old. years. And you mentioned some things about the culture there in Japan and your opinion of whether they're doing things correctly, incorrectly, a little bit of both, which is usually the case for everybody. Yes. Uh, one of which was going into a formal academy. Yep. So let me chime in a little bit of my experience here, my first contact with Japanese football. And it came across when Brian's team, my brother, 
went over and played against Barcelona's academy uh, when they were U12. And that U12 generation at Barcelona's academy, La Masia, was their so-called crown jewel of the academy. They had Ansu Fati, they had Takefusa Kubo, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. And so let me zoom in on, on Take a moment here. Surely he did all of the things that you are advocating for from a very, very early age, having a love affair with the ball, ball mastery, stepping on the sole on the foot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for him to even get to the point where he is recognized by La Masia and recruited to La Masia and having the trajectory that he currently has had. Yes. You know, gotten by Real Madrid, but now he's at Real Sociedad, absolutely doing phenomenally at Real Sociedad. And with the Japanese senior men's national team, all at the young age, uh, he's a 2001, if I'm not mistaken. So he's 22 at the moment, but the trajectory is among the highest ever in Japanese football. Yes. So here's an, uh, I know it's a sample of one Yep. and I don't know all of all of the Japanese national team players. It's a sample of one, but here's a player who at an early age did go into a formal yes. academy setting and they propelled him onward and upwards, if sure. I can say that. Now, I don't know if he did not make that move, what his trajectory would look like. It's hard to know what a parallel universe looks like, sure. but that's just a case study of, hey, get the ball mastery right, five, six, seven, eight, nine years of age, jump into a formal academy setting and now go forth. So I don't know if that pushes back on what you just said, for example, with your son, you know, sure. and, and having an inexperienced coach and it being a great thing. Um, but that's just one thing to consider. The other, the other thing I thought of is Japan has been having phenomenal success. Obviously, the, the women won a World Cup. The women continue to improve, improve, improve. The men continue to improve as well. In my personal opinion, I think the men's Japanese football team is better than the U.S. men's national team. Sure, sure I agree. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of good things that are happening. They're correct things that are happening there. Yep. Um, no, this is, but, this is, yep, go ahead. But, but, but you mentioned that you, you believe that they train too much. Yes. And yet we're seeing positive, in my opinion, positive results sure. from the program. So I don't know if maybe you can expound a little bit more on that, because what if they train less? Would they be having the same results? Sure, sure. Well, this is great. So I've taken little notes here. So let's start with Kubo first. So Kubo, Mm -hmm. he features in my presentations. I have a little video clip of Take in my videos because he epitomizes the whole concept of football starting at home. So, and the reason why is because when he went to Real Madrid and he was training with the first team, it was one of his first training sessions that he had ever had a couple summers ago. And he was being interviewed while walking along with Eden Azada. And the question was asked of him, and I have the whole thing in my, I play the video in my presentation, every presentation I do. And he's asked the question, he said, when did you start playing football? And he said, between the ages of two and three, he said, how come you're so good? He said, because my father, my father, my father, he says it three times. He says, my father taught me everything. So uh, that was at least the connection that I use of, of him getting that early start. 
And I've also filmed a special series down in Australia in 2018 for the World Cup host broadcaster for the World Cup. They came to me and they said, can you marry together this concept of football starting at home with key players in the World Cup? I said, I sure can. Messi, Ronaldo, Suarez, Iniesta, Neymar, Pogba, Lewandowski, Cruz, uh, uh, Rodriguez, all of them. They start between two and five, the role of the fathers, blah, 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 blah. So yeah, Kubo, so what I'm saying is, is that I'm not saying that it's a, what I'm saying is, is that when you can, of course, identify the top players and put them in an academy environment where they're going to have even better coaching, they're going to have better facilities, they're going to have better competition. Oh, I'm all for that. I'm not saying that. But the worst case scenario that I'm trying to shine a light on is that if you can get a kid you know, comfortable with the ball and skilled up with ball mastery. The worst case scenario is, yeah, if you do pair him with the crap coach or the inexperienced volunteer dad, well, that kid's going to develop two to a certain degree until he can find his pathway or her pathway. So that's one thing. The second thing is, yeah, you touched a little bit on the Japanese women. Japanese women are an incredible outlier. We only have 30,000 women registered from, you know, six to 60 in this country. But yet we've won all three World Cup FIFA competitions. We were the only country until a couple months ago, Spain won. Spain has won all three. That's probably the best women's football rivalry in the world is Japan, Spain, hands down. And I think the reason that the Japanese women are so good is because they are focused on that ball mastery and technical skills, but also because there's been a very big Spanish influence at the, at the national team levels. We had a, we had a um, collaboration with the Spanish FA and the Japanese FA, maybe many people don't know about this, for several years, spanning more than probably two decades ago or a decade or two ago. There's a very close relationship. Um, so, so, so what I'm saying is that the, if you watch the Japanese girls, yes, very good technically, and they play a very attractive possession-based type of football. Similar to the Spanish too, right? For sure. The, the, the men as well, the men, we've got just, right now, we are just firing on all cylinders. I mean, the depth, the depth of the national team right now is just off the chart. It's exactly where you want to be because it's exactly where, and this is another one of my philosophies is that our beliefs, is that if you can take the best players and the least developed players, and close that gap between them, that's where the magic happens. That's where you, your elite player pool blossoms. And Japan's is just bursting at the scene. I can't keep up with all the players now that are coming into the first team or going over to Europe. They're just everywhere, right? So that, that is, yeah. and then also one more thing, because you did mention the US too. And I do believe, there's no doubt about it. Of course, you'll get, you know, very passionate, you know, people on the US side say, no, 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 the US, they, they, they don't know what they're talking about, first of all. This isn't to say we have great players in America. There's no doubt about it. The problem is we have few. And here in Japan now, we're seeing that the players that are on the bench, the, the gap between our players that are in Europe, this is the best way to compare US, US, MLS, and Japan. Japan, first of all, 60 teams, promotion, relegation, three-tiered system. Most of our team plays in Europe at top clubs. A lot of them play Champions League as well. But here's the difference. When you look at the gap between the best of the best playing in Europe and the players in the J League, you're not going to see a huge difference in those players. Yeah. You look yeah. at the gap between the, the players playing in Europe for U.S. 
and the players in the MLS, it's like night and day. It, the gap is yeah. the Pacific Ocean. So people don't understand that. But anyway, that's kind of, I think I might have touched, oh, the training. So what I'm saying about the training is, is that. Oh, hold on. Tom, yeah. if you don't mind, let me, let me jump in. Otherwise, we're, sure. it's, it's, let, me, let me poke in, zoom in on a specific thing. So you mentioned the women. And yes. they only have like 30,000 and very few numbers. Yes. And yet look at the outcomes. Yes. It's, it's fascinating to drill down on that and hammer that or highlight that because here in the States in particular, which is our primary audience, they believe, oh, since, you know, soccer is not the number one sport, it's impossible to compete with other, other nations where it's their number one sport. And yet here is a case where you are stating that a mere 30,000, or maybe it's 40,000 or 35 or 25 or 50, right. whatever, on that order, yep. players that are focused, that have the right philosophy, that have the right culture, the right mentality, were able to win a World Cup, were able to dethrone the perennial power that is the United States of America in women's football. That is something, you know, that shouldn't just be a footnote. That is something that really, in my opinion, highlights a core truth when it comes to this game, that it's not just a matter of numbers. There's something else going on here. And yeah. Yeah. I, I think culture is number one and methodology and philosophy and the way of approaching things is far more important than sheer size and numbers. Tom, I don't know if you can say more to that because- yeah. That is an incredible, incredible metric that yeah. just a mere 30, 40,000 with no college soccer, no, none of this sort of title nine or women are amazing sort of thing yeah. uh, can, can propel in such a short amount of time, somebody to win a world cup and be a perennial power. Cause Japan, when the Japan women play, I mean, chances are they're going to win. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it really does come down to that one word that keeps coming back and back, and that is culture. Um, you know, in America, I mean, we could talk a long time about American soccer, especially with the women, but I mean, yeah, Title IX, for people who don't know, I mean, to be able to match the resources that you put towards a men's sport, you have to do the same for women's sport or you lose your funding in colleges. That was a big incentive for colleges to receive federal funding or state funding. So that was huge, and it gave girls a an opportunity, which they should have anyway, but, um, that was a big turning point. I think also because of the athleticism of Americans, uh, and, and, and the girls game as well, that we have been able to at least, uh, compete and compete at the highest level. Cause you're right. I mean, I think we won four world cup tournaments and four gold medals, I believe. Right. But now we're seeing that that's drying up a bit. And, and one of the reasons why is, is because now in Europe, the Europeans have decided, okay, let's go for women's football. Yeah. And yeah. they've taken a giant leap forward. And the reason why, this is just my opinion, the reason why it's, it's culture. Because if you look at the, the, um, if you look at the, you know, characteristics, so to speak, of an American girl versus a Spanish girl or the English girl or the Belgium girl or the French or Italian, any of them, you're yes. going to find this. In America, we have an enormous amount of girls who play the game. Okay, we have that, not as much even in Europe, but an enormous amount. But here's the, here's the crooks, I think, where it's wrong. They play the game, they don't watch. 
and they don't really, they're not immersed in a football culture. They're not marinated in a football culture. So you've got girls now and young women that are sitting around the dining room table and they're sitting around and they're eating dinner and they're hearing and they're talking and football's on TV and the father and the uncle and the grandfather and the son, it's all connected. Here, I'll give you a really quick story. I think you'll find it really interesting. Anson Dorrance, who's a friend of mine, you know, whether you like his style of play, you don't, he's still, he's got a place in women's football. He's won 23 or 22 NCAA division titles. And he was the first head coach of the women when they won the World Cup. And he, yep. I went, I went, and I have a friendship with him. And so uh, several years ago, he would invite me and I'd go to the States. And I'd stay with him for a couple of days. We'd talk football, blah, 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 blah. One time I showed up and I had breakfast at his home and he had to go to training. He said, hey, why don't you come by the training field today? He goes, but I'm going to be a little busy in the morning because I've got a recruit coming from England. Um, and so I've got to look after her. Okay. Blah, blah. I get my rent a car. I drove over to his training. I go there and I see he's got an English girl who he's recruiting with mom and dad, who turns out to be the girl who scored that unbelievable goal uh, in the World Cup. I think it was Russo or one of them. Anyway, and then he's got his central midfielder is from England. His central defender is from England. So later on, I get back to the house and we're having dinner. And I said, Anson, what's with all the English girls? And he says, to be honest with you, they're much more tactically aware than the American girls are. And mm -hmm. I said, well, why is that? And he said, because they're marinated in a football culture. So yeah. what he does now for his girls is he requires the girls that play for him. That is a homework. They actually have to follow a team and basically analyze it and understand it. And I know it might sound simplistic. But it's it's massive. And 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 when you come from those cultures where everything is football, I mean, look at what's happening in Europe now with the women's game. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, the level of players, the interest in the game. Um, and that's why to shift gears here in Japan, we have a little bit of a problem because Amer Japan also is not a football culture. This is not a football culture here. But we do have other cultural characteristics that are conducive to developing players like, you know, um, valuing training and this kind of Buddhist uh, discipline quality of, of like, you're never quite arriving at your final destination. It's about the journey. So there's a lot of cultural things, right? Playing. Mm. But yeah, it's just kind of to talk about the women's game in Japan. No, culture, let's linger on this culture thing. Yeah. So in my opinion, and please challenge me on this because sure. I thought about it for a very long time, or if you agree with it, expound yeah. on it. In my opinion, the women, the U.S. women's national team has been so successful the past couple of decades or whatever it's been since the first World Cup, in large part because of the rest of the world has not, pardon the French, given a shit about women's football. Yeah. And once they started caring, all of a sudden the gap closed incredibly fast. Yeah. And the women, the U.S. women, in some respects, have been surpassed on many metrics. And I think that gap is going to continue to narrow. and to the point where the women will, in my opinion, will asymptotically approach the level of the U.S. men's program, where they will be, eh, I don't know, 11th, 15th, 23rd in the world. It yeah. might take some time still, Tom, but it's not here. There's this idea that the women's national team is, they're just amazing at soccer. And I, look, 
I've been involved with youth girls soccer through my brother many years ago, and I was, I was on the sideline for a handful of years, and I saw how they would play at the top level of youth girls soccer here. I saw how they would play. I saw the coaching. I saw what my brother was able to do. Two of their, his players, by the way, went to Ants and Dorrance yep. whenever it was, but it was worse than yeah. boys soccer. Worse, Tom. And it just makes sense that the reason they won World Cups all those years because the rest of the world didn't care, and now they care just a little bit, and yeah. with caring just a little bit, they caught up. Yeah. I'll, I, I'll let you talk about that for, for a bit because I want to know your opinion, and then I want to stay on the culture topic with respect to the men. Yeah. Well, I, you're absolutely right. You know, Americans, I think just generally uh, mentality-wise is is that we only really are focused and interested in sports that we, as Americans, I hate to say this stupid phrase of, you know, we're number one, we're number one in the world. So, I mean, yeah, we started way, we, the rest of the world spotted the U.S. women's national team a couple of decades, right? I mean, we were, we're really, and if you look at interestingly enough, because someone did a research study, a guy who became a, uh, a friend of mine, actually, do, uh, Professor Matt Robinson from Delaware University, um, back in 2011, when Japan won their first World Cup, uh, their only senior World Cup, he came out with a study. He studied the 10 top countries in the world that focused on women's football. It's a fascinating mm. study. I can send it to you if you want. Mm. And back then, we're talking 20 some odd years ago, the countries that, the, that were even interested or even playing the uh, world, uh, uh, women's or supporting women's football were all countries where women enjoyed a very high status of living. Okay. America, Canada, Germany, the Scandinavian countries. So again, you know, that's very eye-opening, right? And, and so they got a head start and everything, right? Um, and, and then as you're saying, it's, it is amazing to see, usually football development is incremental, right? I mean, you see, okay, there's some signs, okay, the under 17s are doing pretty good or, or here or there, they're winning some tournaments, blah. But yeah, you're right. The Europeans have just like taken this, this giant step up. And, and it leads me to believe that it's not that just all of a sudden football appeared magically on the radar screen for the Europeans. It was there, I believe, but it wasn't being fully supported. It wasn't being reported on. It wasn't being resourced. Um, and now, you know, we're uh, shining a big spot light on it now. And you've seen that, that difference. But I agree with you. I think that the women's game, and I also in my region of the world, which incorporates also Australia, the Australian women's game is very similar to the U.S. game. Exactly. Very, very similar. And they're also coming to grips now with a crisis that, yeah, they're probably, you know, not as good as everybody thought. The people who are involved in football who are, let's say, uh, use the word intellectually honest about it, they know that there's trouble, both in the U.S. and in a country like Australia. And also even in Canada, too, as well, because they did well in the Olympics and then they just got thumped in the World Cup. The women did. So, yeah, I'm, not, I'm agreeing with you. I mean, I think there's going to be there's going to be a reckoning that's come already. And you can already see it by a lot of the old former players um, from the U.S. are getting into arguments about, you know, pointing fingers about what's wrong, what's right, right. What's going wrong, everything. 
And as soon as the kind of the wheels are starting to fall off because people are realizing now, yeah. And people, they, they always try to poo poo these kind of ideas of like, well, the under 17 world cup isn't important. The under 20 world cup isn't important. The Olympics aren't important. And I say, well, really, I mean, in certain countries, they're very important because they need very good competition. And then also it is a looking glass into the future of seeing, because here in Asia, again, connecting the dots, right? Here in Asia, since 1994, no country in the 47 member associations that make up AFC, our confederation, no country has qualified for a World Cup tournament that hasn't already qualified for an under 17 or an under 20. So if mm-hmm. you're this, and I tell countries this because I advise countries here. So if you, you th- so a lot of these countries think they're one coach away from qualifying for a World Cup. And well, I hate to say it, but numbers don't lie. No, you have no chance. Never say never, but you, metaphorically, right? So they don't understand the correlation. Now, that doesn't mean also that because you qualify for an under-17 World Cup or an under-20, that all those players are going to want to be the best players in the world. They might not even play in the World Cup, or they might not be in the national team, but they're adding to the competitive pool. They're they're adding to the competition. You know, the best way to make the best players better is the worst players become better, and they push the best players to become better. So coming back to it all, I think in America, what we lack, again, and we'll circle back to the culture, is We've got a culture of families, communities, clubs don't understand development. They don't know what it looks like. They, you know, of course, there's pockets of there are going to be areas and communities, especially with our massive Latin community in the United States. But for the most part, if you move away from kind of the the East Coast, the West Coast, you know, those areas, you're going to find the middle America um, is very ignorant when it comes to football or soccer as we know it. Um, a few no, things. no, really, no, really. Of course. Okay, so let's stick on the culture st- still thing because that's a huge topic for you, and it, as no. it is for me. And you mentioned the Latino community. Yes. My one of my sticking points or little thorns in the side that I get here from the community is, oh, Gary, well, soccer is not that important. You know, we're just getting started. Maybe you know, in a generation or two or three from now, when the game is 50, 60, 70 years old, older, yeah. then you know, we'll have the culture that you speak of. And I get irked by that, Tom, because we have a huge soccer first culture here in the States. Sure. It's just not the culture that happens to control and dominate the sport here in the States. Yeah, that's right. Governing. You have the Latino or all the immigrants. Yes. Everybody who has a heritage of immigration, immigration into this country, there's millions of us who yeah. are soccer first. I was born and raised here, but all of my family, all of my extended family is from Argentina. Sure. And so not to say that it's in the blood, it's in the DNA, but you know, metaphorically speaking, it's in my blood, it's in my DNA. And just like me are so many other Argentinian Americans, Italian Americans, Croatian Americans, not to mention the Mexican Americans, which number 20 million or 30 million, or God knows how many are here. And I I think you're aware that, you know, my brother's teams were principally comprised of that Latino American uh, background, all of which had fathers and brothers who did the football starts at home to quote your book's title. Sure. And so when they came to Brian, they were ready to take on, you know, the formal coaching education. Yes. Yes. But my point that I'm coming back to is, we have millions of those, Tom, yep. millions. 
And yet what comes out the other side of the pipeline, if we look at a cradle to grave sort of scenario, you start at three years of age and then you pop out at 18, supposedly as a pro, and then, you know, the senior men's national team at that point. And somewhere along that pipeline, maybe at the beginning, maybe in the, at the 20% line, 50% line, 75% line, or even at the very end when you're 18 and yep. people are deciding who to make a professional, who not to make a professional, yep. that culture is being chopped off. Yeah. And for some reason, that is not the culture that makes it to MLS, yeah. let alone the U.S. men's national team. Yep. So it's a curiosity of mine that's been a curiosity of mine for many, many years. And it's, it irks me, Tom, because I think a lot of folks here get the wrong idea when very experienced people such as yourself or very, or people in positions of authority, whether deserved or not here in the States say, oh, we just don't have the culture here in the States to be competitive on the men's side. It's something I am completely in disagreement with. Yeah. It is a system-wide issue that does not facilitate the soccer culture becoming the focus uh, of our football. You mentioned only 30,000, 35,000 women or girls there in Japan, and look yeah. what they were able to accomplish. Yeah. What if we leveraged our 20 some odd, 20 plus odd million of soccer first households in the United States. Maybe if you can say a couple of words to that, you know, yeah. I'd be appreciative and maybe you disagree. It's just something because I've lived it, Tom, I lived it personally in my youth soccer trajectory and my friends, because all my friends were Colombian Americans, Peruvian Americans, Uruguayan Americans, Brazilian Americans. And we all have the same sentiment. We see what happened to us yeah. growing up, but we, we've seen it in our 20 plus years of youth soccer coaching here with that particular demographic and what happens to them. And yeah. then I don't know if you're aware the past six plus years, even though I've been involved in, in this business also for over 10 years, but in the last six plus years, I've been public about running an agency here and representing professional soccer players and trying to do what is best by that Latino American community and giving them the best possible chances of successfully transitioning to the professional game, because here in the States, it's few and far between the Mexican Americans in particular who make the jump from youth to pro and actually have staying power. So yeah. rant aside, yeah. thoughts on, on what I just said. Yeah. I mean, I'm in total agreement with you. I didn't understand it as well as I do today better, uh, about the, I guess this exclusion of this massive populace of immigrant kids and families that just don't have a seat at the table. They don't. And now I know because I spent, um, I just spent four years working with the Houston Dynamo, which is, mm. and a lot of people don't know, Houston is the most diverse city in the United States. It's, 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 it's massive, right? Huge population. It's like a country. It's got like 7 million people. And I knew because I worked very close on a project with the academy. Um, and I saw the amount of talent that was in around the neighborhoods and I could see that we could, here's a couple of like anecdotal stories, Paul mm -hmm. Holaker, who was the Academy director, we would drive around after the work that we had to do at nighttime after dinner, 
and we would see areas where kids were playing football. And he would literally pull the car because he was a new guy as well. He had, it just so happened he had just taken over the academy, I'd like to say around 2018 or 19. And so he was still finding his way. So he was fascinated when we'd be driving at like eight o'clock at night, he'd see like a, a field with lights on and kids playing. So we'd pull over and more times than not, it was the Latino kids. And he'd, bro, he would literally pluck a kid out of that and bring him right to the academy the next day. I love it. Yeah, yeah that's what he was doing. And, and then he saw, he saw that traditionally the Houston Dynamo only had one academy that was centered in an area where kids out in the, in, the, in the community couldn't possibly even reach that area. So he started setting up these satellite north, south, east, west, because he knew that the, there were some you know, real golden nuggets out there that nobody knew about. And, and, he's, and, he's done, and they've done well. They've got, last I, I checked, they're doing very well with their academy. But yeah, that, that's a problem. And I think one of the reasons is, is because Unfortunately, and I just posted a couple of things about this on social network media. Uh, one of the problems is, is that the governing structure in the United States is terrible. It's terrible. Man. And one of the reasons is because you've got ancient governing structures, which are dead, that are operated by volunteers. Mm. So here's a really interesting insight. And I hope I'm not delving off onto a tangent, but I think it's very noteworthy to understand. In most countries in the world, first of all, what's normal? Okay, what's normal? Let's start with that. What's normal is you have a national federal body, okay, U.S. soccer, the Japan Football Association, the Spanish Football Association, and they're the gods. They run, they oversee everything. They even have oversight into the professional leagues as well. But then you have the professional league. You got MLS, you've got the J League, you've got La Liga. Okay, let's just stick with those three. But then underneath the national body, you have state associations, okay? In Japan here, we have 47 state associations that fit under the JFA. There ain't nothing else, man. There's no other group. You're not going to you know, go out tomorrow and pick out a couple of letters out of the alphabet and say, I'm going to start calling myself this. No, there's nothing that exists. And I'm pretty sure it's the same way in Spain and other countries. Now, let's move on to the U.S. In the U.S., what happened was, and here's a history lesson. In 1994, U.S. soccer, under a massive contract with Adidas, playing in the World Cup. All of a sudden, after the World Cup was finished, or at least when the contract runs out, Nike had been secretly negotiating to sign the Federation as a long-term, I think it was a 10-year deal. I might have my numbers wrong, but the story is not going to change. But what happened was, is that they hadn't realized that USYSA, as they were called in, in the, back in the day, United States Youth Soccer Association, had a long-term contract with Adidas, okay? So what happened was, is that a bunch of guys at US Soccer said, hmm, why don't we start a youth component that's going to fit under US Soccer called, hey, interesting enough, similar, US Club Soccer. And mm. what that did was, it broke the governance structure in the United States, basically. So now you've got a whole bunch of the state, what's called or considered the state associations. Bro, they don't operate or function as state associations. They got the name in it, but they've got, you know, USYS, which is United States Youth Association. I think they even took the state out. So this started 
a little bit of what I, I think is a catastrophe because it it changed the model. There's no govern. There's no real structured governance. So now you've got whether it's good or bad for the game is re, is, is, is is isn't the point. You got ECNL, you got ASO, you got USYS, you got the MLS doing their own thing. Academies. You've got uh, you, you've got it's just it's broken. Yeah. But the one constant is that they're all driven by money. It's all commercialized. Hence, the long-winded story is, is that, yeah, so many groups are excluded now because of this pay-to-play model. And I'm not so sure how you get the genie back in the bottle, to be honest with you. America is just a unique where anybody can come in tomorrow. You and I could start a new league next week or a new yeah. association if we wanted to do it. So this is a very untraditional way of governing the game and developing the game which the unintended consequences are is that it basically has become too expensive for these minority groups to actually play if i was sitting and i was at the top of the pyramid and i was in a position of influence what i would be doing is here's a really good segue man you get it this is great this is a great conversation we're having because i can build right in what i'm going to tell you now so what needs to really be done is that education together with sport, and it's something that we're doing. This is something that I just spent doing for the last couple of years. And in the Houston, in the Houston, one of the big things about football starts at home, and I'm, I'm not saying this to shamelessly plug our program is, but when I wrote the book in 2015, I caught the attention of a guy by the name of Dr. John Rady. He's one of the foremost neuropsychiatrists in the world from Harvard Medical School, okay? He took an interest in what, he had heard about some work I was doing in China, he was in China. Anyway, he contacted me. This culminated in an hour conversation. Dr. Rady, people listening today will know, some of your, some of your followers will know him, he's world renowned. He wrote a book called Spark. And Dr. Rady is important because he has shined a bright light on the fact kids who are physically active, how it impacts the brain and learning, okay? So Dr. Rady had taken an interest in my work and I had just gotten done writing the book and he asked to read the manuscript. So when I sent him the manuscript, he loved it so much, he wrote the forward and the afterward. So he wrote 13 pages in the book, but here's what, why it's important. What he wrote in the book was the part of the brain, and this is very important for people who wanna understand skill active, uh, uh, acquisition. The part of the brain that's responsible for ball mastery is the cerebellum, okay? The cerebellum is the seat of the unconscious, subconscious mind. Regardless whether it's a mental task or a physical task, it's all stored in the cerebellum. But here's the kicker. The cerebellum is also responsible for thinking, for remembering, which is memory, decision-making, controlling emotions, and here we go, reading and math, literacy and numeracy. So Dr. Rady had written in the book that he surmised that ball mastery at the very young ages could actually impact the cerebellum enough that it would actually impact cognition, okay? And in particular, math and math. Now, fast forward. I just spent two years in working with the Houston Dynamo and the University of Houston. When you walk into the University of Houston, they have a building. You walk into this building, and outside the door, it says Houston Dynamo Dash Soccer Starts at Home Research Laboratory. That's all they did. And what we did was we took kindergarten kids and first grade kids, and I'm, 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 I'm condensing it, and we basically gave them a 10-week program 
uh, of ball mastery at home and at school. And what it did was we raised the test scores in mathematics and reading. Now you might sit and say, come on, are you joking? No, we raised the test scores in the children in mathematics. Now, why is this important? Because check this out. New York City, where I'm from, I was just there. New York City, kindergarten to 12th grade, 50% of kids between K and 12 cannot pass a mathematics test. Uh, I'm sorry, reading test, reading test. Another 70%, K to 12, cannot pass a mathematics test. One out of every three uh, uh, preschoolers cannot read at the appropriate age. But here it goes. And you're, you're not going to believe it. This is tying into exactly what my solution to what you're talking about. Is that, guess what the budget, the annual budget for New York Educational Department per year just as a what 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 could you imagine that that budget is that's failing? Fifty percent of the kids can't read. Seventy percent can't do simple math. What do you think the budget is annually for that? Tom, no no idea, man. You're saying what's the budget yearly budget for education in New York? Is that the yeah. question? Yep. Yeah, it's very difficult. I have no idea. Okay, okay. I, I you're, you're you're gonna want to double check this because you're not gonna believe me. Okay, bro. Mm. Well, $36.5 billion with a B is the amount of money that's spent on education in New York State. $35 billion, bro. So the point is this. The football world now, we actually have a, a program that makes kids smarter, whether mathematics and reading. It's a no-brainer. If you really want to think about the future of the sport in our country, the schools have to be participating, whether it's futsal, with, so what we did in Houston was we focused on school-age kids, preschools, early learning centers, kindergartens, first and second grade, to ensure that the teachers were introducing just ball mastery, just ball mastery, get the kids inter interested in the ball. And this was enough to raise their cognition. We also, listen to this, we also lessened the sedentary activity of the kids who participated in our program because we hooked them up to wearables. So the whole thing that I'm trying to say and why this is relevant is, is that un unless America, educators, government, world, they're spending all the money, unless they understand the added proposition of playing the sport, which we have, we're not going to see anything different. These, we're never going to change the way that the game is governed in the United States right now with all of these different organizations. But we could ask every single school in America has a gymnasium. Can you imagine that in first, so what our goal was in Houston was to get kids really proficient in ball mastery, early learning centers, preschool, kindergarten, first, second grade, and then third grade to fourth grade, they start playing futsal because every single school has a futsal. So now I'm just tr trying to throw some ideas out there because we can sit here and argue about the failing uh, lack of inclusion and governing of the sport. But I'd rather try to throw out some uh, solutions and ideas on how to actually circumvent that. Because you're right, we've got armies and thousands, if not millions of kids that are on the sidelines. They can't, they're not a part of any kind of organized sport. So the point is, is that we wouldn't normally be able to convince people. I tell people, I go around the world and I present. I'm a presenter, right? I'm a storyteller. And I sit in a room often with 500 parents 
trying to convince them why to put their kids in a football program. Now, with 500 parents, I can't convince them to put their kids in a football program because football is great. But I can convince a lot of them to put their kids in a football program because I want to make your kids smarter. Bro, you know what ball mastery does? Ball mastery is conditioning a small child to control an object, the ball, with feet at the age of three, four, and five. So you know what that is? That's a mental task. That's a mental test. Now, when you're just chasing a ball, that's not a mental test. That's physical. But here's the kicker. When you're conducting ball mastery with a very small child, the mental task married together with the movement, the physical task, bro, now you've got thinking and feeling, mind, body, mental, and physical. When you marry those two, what you're doing is you're allowing the cerebellum, the part of the brain that's responsible for ball mastery, to create what's called a chemical signature of that experience, which is emotions. So what we know now, or the neuroscience world knows that emotions are the on-off switch for learning. So when I'm always railing about this football starts at home, parenting, parent, yeah, because that connection between the child and the parent is so crucial because the child is constantly seeking the attention, approval, and the uh, praise of a parent. And so it's all interconnected. So what, what I'm saying is, is that the football world has to start thinking differently because we have such a monumental hurdle to jump over in the United States with this exclusion. But bro, the big hot topic nowadays is social equity, racial equity, educational equity, you know, getting kids. And what I'm saying is, is that I believe that at least in the future, and again, sorry for these long-winded answers that I give you, but the, the, the solution is basically showing that through football, we can actually enrich a child's life on many different aspects aside from the football part. We're football people. We want to have better players and inclusion. But until the football world starts understanding that, and I sat in MLS headquarters a couple of weeks ago and I told them that. I sit with the guys from U.S. soccer, some of them, and I tell them that as well. But it's a slow grind. But that's the way that I see getting out of this monumental barrier, which is, yeah, a lot of these kids are excluded. And they can't get into the game. They, 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 they just can't because it's too cost prohibitive. So sorry for my long-winded question. I hope no, I no, it's no, it's good, man. It's good. I, I get to see the inner workings of your mind, and so will anybody who's listening to this. Hopefully, you'll allow me to try to distill what's in my mind. I don't know if I'm going to do a good job because some of these ideas are fresh that you're throwing at me. Yeah. So I'm going to react to them. Sure. Uh, just put them down on record. And over the course of time, you know how this works, Tom. We've been in this game for decades and been in this profession for decades. It takes a long time for you to really hone and smooth out the ideas that you might have. So if you'll allow me some, some leeway here as I, as I try to distill things. On, on the neuroscience education front that you just laid out, my two main reactions were one, Man, Tom, I could talk your year off as well with respect to education because I've been teaching at the university level for 15 years now, uh, physics in particular. My background and training is in physics and mathematics, uh, science, quote unquote. And then I worked as an engineer for six or seven years doing spacecraft design, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite familiar with reading literature. I'm quite familiar with 
the scientific method and trying to think through things as to what is good science, what is bad science, what is popular science, because, you know, without levying judgment one way or the other, we just lived through this whole COVID pandemic. And there certainly was a lot of controversy, whether there was good science being done, bad science being done, what is fact, what is fiction, what is propaganda, what is not propaganda, who's a charlatan, who's not a charlatan. So I'm always, I always try to be very careful, sure. especially if it's, if it's not in my field, specific field of study, to when I ascribe credibility sure. uh, to certain things. In particular, and this might be an arrogant thing to say, physicists certainly are kind of considered arrogant bastards. Um, outside of physics and mathematics, I try to be even more cautious because, and we've been around a long time, Tom, I'm 46 now. Uh, I think you're, you know, you're a little bit older than I am. Um, there you go. So I recall in nutrition science, for example, growing up, I was a little kid. My parents would say, oh, you know, I read eggs are bad for you, high cholesterol, heart attack, you know, and then five or six years later, oh no, eggs are a great source of protein. Fantastic. In, in so many respects, it's good for you. You should have as many eggs as you can. And yep. then five years after that, oh, eggs are the worst. Don't have any eggs. And, and the pendulum sweeps back and forth, depending on a particular study or other. Same thing with red meat. And now all of a sudden, all, so much of the rage is the carnivore diet. Oh, it's fantastic. Sure. It heals all kinds of things. Here's yep. the data. You get my point here. So yeah, not, not, to, not to demean in any way what you just said at all, because a lot of it makes sense to me with the um, coordination and, yeah, and the neural pathways that get formed when you're doing these sorts of activities. It makes a lot of sense what you said, similarly to some studies that have occurred with video games, you know, oh, video games are terrible for you. And then studies come out that say, well, no, like uh, video games, you develop all this hand-eye coordination and strategy development and your mind is active all the time. So, you, and yeah. God knows what that'll turn into five, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Maybe the video gamers of today become incredible leaders of tomorrow because of all of these skills that have come. So anyways, I just wanted to throw out sure. my reaction, yep. you know, to that. But I think what is, what is important here is that I'm certain that if young players, three, four, five, 10, 12 years of age are active in sport are active in football, if the schools prioritize this a little bit more than they currently are at the elementary age, the positive effects there, I think it's all positive, Tom, I guess yeah. is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, insofar as circumventing or solving the problem of the Latino American demographic here, having a pathway going forward, I'm not so clear on that mm. being a solution for them. Um, I think U.S. soccer First off, the history lesson you just gave me is awesome, gave us, is just awesome, of what happened in 94 and the partition that occurred yes. with the U.S. youth soccer pathway is something I, I didn't give too much thought to, and it makes a lot of sense. 
U.S. soccer, Tom, when they started the Development Academy in 2007, they had a unique opportunity at that point and years to come to create a pathway, an open, inclusive pathway. They could have chosen to create a promotion relegation system. They could have chosen that because if they had chosen that, then that opens the pathway to the whole country to potentially be included in the U.S. Soccer Development Academy. And they chose not to do that. They chose to have a gatekeeper system. We are going to select very specific clubs based on nebulous factors because it's not publicly, it's not transparent. And then even worse than that, when the pandemic hit, U.S. soccer conveniently decided to close down the Development Academy and hand over the reins to MLS. So a a closed garden there as well. I just wanted to comment on the neuroscience thing that you had mentioned, which is fascinating. I want to learn a little bit more. And you mentioned a study, which I would, yeah, if you can send me that, that'd be awesome. Yep. And then on the broken systems, dude, I I don't know, Tom, I don't know what's going to, I think education is key. I think people like you, people like myself and hopefully others who might be inspired or see are driven to fight, Tom. We need, we need fighters here. And too many people are not fighting for the improvement of not just football in our country, but of helping this demographic. I don't care. And I'll shut up after this. I do not care about soccer, Tom. I don't care about kicking a soccer ball on a rectangular patch of grass. I've said this so many times. I care about that. That for me is a proxy for culture, for social, political, and economic issues. And since I'm involved in football, I want to fight for those social, political, economic, cultural things through the proxy that is soccer. Yeah. Do I want to create better players or give better players a, a more opportunity? Of course, of course. But do I care that Man City, oh, this weekend they played a 3-4-3 versus a 4-2-3-1. I could could give a shit, Tom. I don't care if that makes it. And and I think a lot of that is also within you. Um, And I know you have kids. And I think that while you might care about the game, the sport itself, I think a significant proportion of why you care are those other things, are the social, political, economic, and cultural factors. Can you comment to that? Uh, do you, yeah. Yeah, sure. Bunch of things to unpack here. I, I took my notes here. Yeah, first of all, just I want to say a couple of more things just about the neuroscience stuff. Mm-hmm. From the beginning when my book came out and I was going around the world and I was giving talks and being invited to uh, different conferences and things, I intentionally omitted any things that had to do with the neuroscience that Dr. Rady had written the 13 pages because I knew I wasn't an expert. Mm. And it wasn't until I was going to do a presentation somewhere and my business partner, who's also my agent lawyer, he said, dude, why aren't you putting any of that great info in about the learning and the cerebellum and the sand? I told him, I said, well, listen, because I don't feel comfortable doing it because that's not my expertise. And so then I started to put pieces in. So Unfortunately, because you've never seen, and, and hopefully maybe offline we can do this another time, I'd love to show you the actual presentation that I have because I use all the slides that Dr. Rady has presented that he put in my book. 
So I, I make sure that I don't step out of my lane and say anything that I'm not qualified to say. And recently, a couple of weeks ago, my trip to the United States was because I went to North Carolina because North Carolina State Association, we just signed a two-year agreement where we are putting a football or soccer starts at home strategy in place for the state association for two years. Anson Dorrance came to that. Cindy Cohn, the president of U.S. Soccer came. And interestingly enough, Dr. Rady came from Harvard Medical. So before my presentation, I showed them the slides I was going to use. And I said, listen, I think because you're there, I should take these slides out and you should talk about it. They said, no, son, you go ahead and do it. So I did it. So I'm a little bit comfortable. At least I try to stay within my range. But you're absolutely right. We have to be very careful. And also the other thing, too, is that we did a two-year study um, with the University of Houston with proper PhD researchers who came to all their conclusions. They've got all their fancy little graphs and all of their kind of, you know, all of their different kind of, you know, uh, different outcomes. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll send that or I'll at least share that with you at the right, at the right. Yeah, perfect. I think the, um, yeah, I mean, you know, why do we do things? I, you're, you're right. I mean, it's not always because of my love for football. I, I, I very rarely even watch football these days, to be honest with you. I mean, I watch mm -hmm. it time but I, I i watch like a big game or or if, if i personally have a a friend who's coach there or a player or something but i'm just more i just believe in what i believe and i believe that i guess it is more or less on the culture side i think that the sport can make a huge impact on lives I've, I, the amount of parents that have come up to me that have said to me and not even so much coming up to me face to face but have written me letters saying you know what you really changed the dynamic of our family because the, one of the greatest things in life is being able to help your kids do anything, learn or, or, or do something. So I've always been really intrigued by the reaction that I've gotten from parents. And when I do my presentation, regardless of who it is I do it to, whether it's the president of a federation, whether it's a captain of a national team who plays in the World Cup, or it's a taxi driver, I do it at the same level of intensity. I don't know why, but yeah. I, I, I believe in what I'm, what I'm doing. That's why I'm so passionate about it. But you're right. I, I mean, it, there's lots of different reasons of why I do it. I also do it because I'm frustrated because I see that there are a lot of kind of, um, I, I don't know if I want to use the word charlatans, but there's a lot of people out there claiming to have the big fix on football development. And when I watch and I see what it is that they're presenting, which is usually in the traditional sense, it represents the old of, you know, how we present football development. It's got to be with a very highly skilled, licensed coach and a, and a young kid with a big ball and, you know, off they go. And they're not looking at the culture piece. They're not looking at the impact of family. They're not looking at the impact of the social element of it as well. Of, you know, my friend, my, I learned real quickly when my kids went to school that my kids were going to start dictating who I hung out with because they're their friends yeah. and parents, right? So when I started looking at all of these things and realizing the impact that the sport can have on social, cultural, cognitive, physical health, all of it, I don't know. That's why I, I think that I'm, I'm, I, I do what I do. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. I might be rambling here, but those are some of the you reasons. Know, I, Tom, I, I, no, I think, Tom, I think, you know, once you've, put in so many hours, thousands and thousands, thousands of hours and decades of work within one specific domain, yeah. that is your expertise. And you start peeling back the proverbial layers of the onion to the point where it becomes more than just 
a subject, yeah. if that makes sense. So, so I see so many folks here in the United States where the game is getting more and more popular, more accounts popping up on social media, tracking the U.S. men's national team or tracking U.S. youth national team players or tracking out an MLS team, you know, and these folks, great. They've started on the journey. You know, yeah. they might be in their mid twenties, late twenties, early thirties, whatever the number is. Maybe it's like you said, a lawyer who had a kid and now cares about soccer. They're just starting on this journey and they haven't peeled back those layers yet. So for them, so much of it is simply just a game. It's like they think about, okay, the four, three, three or the formations or who is better than wh what player is better than what other player and who should the coach be and who should the coach not be and who made the right decisions and who didn't, you know, this transfer was a bad transfer that he should yeah. transfer here or there. They're all superficial level analyses. Yeah. And it's part of the journey because that's how so many people start. And after three, four, five, 20 years later, you start realizing all the machinations of the game, the yeah. subsurface level. What are the real moving parts, Tom? Yeah. You know, yeah. what are all the in political economic interests in the game and yeah. how that is actually, those are the levers yeah. dictating what happens and what happens in an ecosystem, whether it be a state level or a national level or international level ecosystem. But it's only after such a long period of time actually working in the game, because I don't think that you can be outside of the game yeah. uh, as a spectator or as a fan or reading a reporter's articles or being a reporter. You know, as far as I'm concerned, a reporter doesn't gain that deep subject matter expertise as somebody who's in the trenches doing the work yeah. on the daily. So I guess my point is after doing that for so long as you have, as some others have as well, that is when we care at a different level yeah. and our fight is at a different level. And, you know, I'm empathetic to your plight over the years because I'm, Listen, I admire your work, like I said in the beginning. Yep. And I see what you post, and I see the reactions to what you post, and yeah. I see your counter reactions at time, and I know you control yourself, but at times, sure. like myself, it's kind of like, guys, like you don't even know what I'm talking about here. You think <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, but you don't have no idea. Like yeah. the, my 240 characters here has 30 years of experience behind it. And I know your counter argument. I know, you know, the opponent's argument better than they know the argument. Yeah, you're, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head, man. You, you're explaining this much better than I could. Yeah. No. So, so I, I get it. And I'm trying to do my best to connect with folks like you who understand at a much deeper level than the superficial I just described. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that our audience, it's an education process, so that our audience begins to have some sort of light bulb moment saying, okay, how can I better discern what it is I should be consuming versus what I should not be consuming? Yeah, yeah. That, that is one of my principal goals, because if these folks have kids themselves, they are the primary mentors. The parents are the primary mentors, Tom. 
And they are the ones who are going to be making decisions for their kids. And so who they choose to listen to is, is pivotal. If they listen to the wrong sources, quote unquote, wrong sources, guess what? Their kids are going to follow a certain trajectory. If they listen to the quote unquote right sources, guess what? Their kids are going to follow a different trajectory. So I I think that is where we can make the biggest difference is in the education process. Yes. Um, We have to do our best to distill our knowledge and experience as best we can, as early as we can to these parents before they, and I don't have a better word for this, before they get brainwashed by all the superficial nonsense that exists out there, Tom. And your book, again, Football Starts at Home, your book is one such avenue, but I feel like in today's age, the medium of a book doesn't get as widely distributed as the the other mediums. So it, it is incumbent on you, on folks like you, on folks like us to do everything in our power to get into these parents' heads as much and as often and as early as we can. Absolutely. And, and I think that's why you often probably hear me say things like, I, I'll, I'll say it again. Now, I'd rather be in a room with 500 parents than with 500 coaches mm-hmm. because I want to take the message directly to them. And then the, the other thing, too, that I was really fascinated about in all of my work and studies was the actual neuroscience stuff. Yeah, I'm not an expert in it, but I probably know a little bit more. I know that, and and I'd forgotten. I knew that you were uh, you were um, it, uh, it involved in it, your area of research and study was quantum physics and things like that, which is another fascination of me as a, from an amateur. But I, I'm just completely possessed with it. Um, but the neuroscience part of understanding about something as simple as this for parents to understand when these kids, when a little three year old, four year old is conducting ball mastery. It's really just teaching a child how to pay attention, how to focus. And the brain is learning how to learn. And I could see in my own kids, when you can t- just think about it, how powerful this is to, c- to be able to develop that ability in a three, four, five, six-year-old, the ability of paying attention. Because just paying attention, learning takes place. And now when you don't pay attention, your brain, you know, activates a completely different synaptic connection, which distracts it from the original tent and something is simple. So when you look at these like Messi, the Iniestas, the Xavi, the Neymars, uh, Ronaldo's, their ability to focus their attention is unbelievable. Now, it just so happens that they focused and they decided self-chosen to focus on football. But who knows? Maybe if they had focused to be, you know, a neuroscientist or a lawyer, they would have been the best at the best as that as well. But once you get that ability to learn how to learn, to me, it's a superpower for children. And that's why I'm so you know, convinced that parents are, are, are the key. And then here's another thing you re- might appreciate, because again, I spent so many years working in this Curver program, and I get the whole criticism of it, and I get the positive side of it, because I worked in, in it, but now I understand how we learn. And I understand that, yeah, when you take a, a 12-year-old and they start lining up and they're doing these step over, step over, step. They might look wonderful. For example, me as a 62-year-old, I'm a demonstrator. I've, I've been a demonstrator for years. Yeah. So if you watch me, if you watch me demonstrate in my events, you think, man, this guy's like, you know, this guy's like the next Messi. I'm, I'm exaggerating. 
But the point is, is that I never understood that, that those mental skills are not stored in my implicit, in the part of the brain where I don't have to think about it. It's in my conscious awareness. It's not in my unconscious awareness. So that's where I started really understanding. And now fast forward and I can see my own children who grew up with a ball at their feet at two, three, four, five, and six, okay? That those mental tasks, those physical tasks, they're all stored in their unconscious awareness. Right? And, and that's the difference. So it makes sense to me though. You can take a kid and practice and they can look really good doing a, a, a move, a reserve, and they're gonna look great. But that does not mean they're gonna do it in a game because they're not gonna be able to recall it implicitly. And that's yeah. the part that I never understood and that I fell into that dogma of the, here's the other thing. My sons, whose father grew up, they grew up, on, I'm on TV every day doing different moves, t step over, reverse the math. And I, I have the best-selling DVDs in Japan. Bro, my kids, I never expose that to my kids. My kids don't even know that that world exists. The only thing that I part that that I taught them was ball mastery. That was it, man. And then what happened was is that once they get those basic fundamentals, then they start experimenting with the ball and they figure out what works and what doesn't work. So I could never really explain that as the curver guy. Bro, I was the face of the brand here in Japan for decades, man. Mm -hmm. And this isn't a ditch. The curver guys may say, "Oh, you're throwing us under the bus." No, I understand how we learn now, and I can understand. And I hate to say this too. But, and I learned this from the professors that I was working with, the PhDs at the University of Houston, that say, and this is not popular to hear, but even by the age of six and seven, kids are showing physical deficits already. So it's very difficult. So it makes sense. Yeah, of course you can improve a kid and make them better by, you know, introducing them there. But you're not going to see that giant leap forward that I saw with my own kids. You know, or I see with the play kids that grow up in the football cultures because they're immersed in it. So now I can understand and explain a little bit better, even what this curver program is or why it works with certain kids. And then it doesn't work for kids that could be doing those moves for, you know, hours on end. And when they play in the game, they don't use them. Mm. You know, mm. if that makes sense. It know? does. It does. But well, repetition, I mean, you can't go wrong with repetition, though. Yes. Right. I mean, the more repetitions you do, as far as my understanding goes, the more you solidify those neural pathways and the more likely, if I can say that, you will be able to do things subconsciously. Yes. Well, well, well here's what I understand. This, this is what I, mean. what I understand. Is that 95% of a child's brain is developed by the age of five or six. The most active part of the brain is the cerebellum. That's the most active part. And that's where the, regardless of mental or physical tasks, they're stored in the, in, in the cerebellum. So this is what I understand, is that first of all, the feet being the furthest distance from the brain, okay, we, we rarely have any opportunities to build those neural pathways other than walking, standing. But again, because it becomes a mental task of trying to control that object with the feet, and there's a, and you may, not, may or may not know this, but there's, a, there's what's called Hebb's Law in neuroscience that states the nerve cells that fire together, they wire together to make a neural network. And the way that you make that neural network strongest is by repetition. But here's the catch. The gate apparently closes quite early from an early age. 
So obviously a child conducting repetition training of doing whatever at the ages of three, four, five, six, seven is going to be way more impactful than the kid that's starting to do it from 11, 12, 13, 14. That's my mm. understanding. And that, that's where it becomes more susceptible to being stored in the what's called, and you might know, you've got the declared memory and you have the non-declared memory. Non-declared memory is for physical tests. That's for learning how to drive a car, riding a bicycle. It's not within your conscious awareness. But here's the kicker where I think I figured it out with the curver or the people te te teaching the moves. A lot of people, when they don't get that repetition from the, in the early ages where it's hardwired and it becomes implicit, what happens is they have to activate their conscious awareness to say, okay, I'm going to do a step over and try to move them to that side. Whereas a Messi, a Ronaldo, Suarez, any, whoever, that happens, man. Those are mathematical equations done in a millisecond, man, that they're doing it because I believe it's stored in the, in the, in the, in the implicit part of the, of, of the brain or the mind where it becomes natural. So it makes sense, man. So that's why it does make sense where you've got people who are saying, yeah, unless the player is in a full pressure environment and they're, and, and they're using those moves in a game related way that you can do all the isolated training until the cows come home and the kid's not going to improve. But again, I think it's because it depends on what those age levels are. And also, what's their foundational basic ball mastery ability when you're trying to teach a more complex, more difficult movement, if this makes sense? Yeah. You know? No, and, it and, is. I, 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 again, I'm not an expert in it, but I'm starting to un understand it. And I only really figured out this whole idea of when you bring things into your conscious awareness or your unconscious awareness, there's a major difference, but people don't even understand the difference. Hey, a lot of people don't even understand what conscious, unconscious, or subconscious means, let alone your conscious or your subconscious awareness of it and bringing it up and recalling it. And the difference between a mental task and memorizing a physical, like a combination to a number versus memorizing a movement that is becomes implicit so that's a that and that's a that you know you've got to study you know maybe decades to that but at least i'm coming around but i'm connecting the dots and it's making more sense to me about it you know yeah tom there's a great book here and i read it many years ago so i'm i'm not gonna attempt to distill what it says the title i think is called something like thinking fast and slow or think fast think yeah. slow the, the author is daniel kahneman and it touches on this very particular topic of conscious versus unconscious sort yeah. of actions and reactions. It certainly ca it makes a lot of sense to me. It makes a it, lot of sense. It does. And, and, yeah. and it touches, frankly, on something that people think is quite controversial when I say it. That is that a player cannot develop certain things later in life. Yeah. And many of my player assessments or judgments that I've levied in public surrounding certain American players that he will never be X or Y or Z because he's already 18 or 19 or 20 yeah. and there's no chance. People have a difficulty wrapping their heads around that. They're, they're like, Gary, what are you talking about? He's just starting. He's so young. He's 19 yeah. years old. Give him yeah. time to develop. You don't know what he's going to be like at 25 or 26 or 23 or 28. And this is specifically 
towards the technical and even the the, the tactical because the tactical is a lot of cognition and, yeah. and and being able to see space and time and understanding those sorts of things i am a firm believer in once you reach you're talking about once you're reaching five or six years of age tom i'm talking i'm talking about like once you reach 18 or 19 i'm like yep. guys this player is, cannot have ever the technical quality of Xavi. It's not going to happen. They're like, Gary, he's only 18. Yeah. Guys, please understand. There's just no chance. It's not going to happen. Xavi has been doing this for so many. You can start doing all the repetitions you want. Yep. You are not going to catch up. It is That's not right. going to happen. So I don't have the science behind that. I just have, I guess, personal anecdote pattern recognition over X number of years, seeing the trajectory of players that I'm leaning on. And, and that's why I resonate with the study that you're saying, Tom. I, I agree. I, I don't know whether by the time you're six or seven, as you're saying, or five years of age, if, you've, if you're already screwed or not screwed, I don't know that. Sure. But I certainly feel like once, by the time you're 17, 18, if you don't have a certain level. Yes. And it's hard to quantify. And it's hard to quantify that. That's Quanti what people struggle with. They sure. want me to quantify. I can't quantify how smoothly Iniesta receives the ball and how quickly he releases the ball and the certain the biomechanics, the biophysics. I can't quantify that. And that's what people struggle with. It's just pattern recognition. So I'm like, guys, if he doesn't have this, he doesn't have he's never gonna have it. What, what so he, I yeah. agree completely agree with you and in Iniesta is another one who, who I've got a whole slide in my presentation as one of the models and, and it's a it's a picture of him he's probably around four years old and he's got not even a football he's got a makeshift ball that wasn't even a football I, I, I don't know what that kind of ball is. but here's another really interesting part that was made very popular by the author Daniel Coyle the talent code maybe you've heard of it yeah maybe of course and there's that whole idea about the myelin, the myelinated nerve fibers, right? And and that was really another big awakening for me because I, I looked into that as well, which is really, really interesting in that if you look at, and I've got right here, my cell phone charger, right? So the white plastic, okay, is the protective layer that protects the copper wire that the, 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 the signal travels along. So if you consider this a neural pathway, the white plastic is the myelin. The myelin is the protective sheet that protects the nerve fiber. But here's the kicker. There's only two ways to thicken this myelin. And then they know this is irrefutable. You can read about it. But the, the thicker the myelin, the faster that the message travels along the pathway. So there's two ways to thicken myelin. One is through repetition. Okay. And the other one, believe it or not, is to breastfeeding from a young child's age. Now, what happened in the book in the Daniel Coyle was, is that he went down to Brazil. He started studying Bra Brazilian players and he found that Brazilian players, their myelin was super thick. Okay. So they attributed it to what? Playing futsal, constantly firing and wiring the neural pathway, which literally makes the signal travel 100 times quicker along the pathway. So that at least explains the, the reason why when you see these players who have got this tremendous amount of time that they've played with the ball from a young age, 
that they that their their technical ability and their movement is just so quick because of this biological again the myelin being so thick but what i understand is again i'm not a complete expert on this is that the myelin just doesn't completely keep developing until you're 18 19 20 years old it seems to be a very short amount of time which kind of makes sense so you know when you go around you see in the favelas that's all they're playing is they're playing football constantly or in a lot of latin countries they're constantly firing and wiring it and that is what's developing that ability for that technique and as you said you can take an older kid and that kid's never going to have that technical ability of a shabby or or whoever the players are but i think that that's important because i think that parents need and coaches need to understand that repetition is key but repetition has become kind of this bad word because unless you're putting full pressure or limited pressure while they're doing that repetition, there's a lot of coaches that think repetition training is useless, but it's not. So you need to understand at least the biology of how does neural pathways become so strong and the, and the message travel and the, the whole idea of the implicit memory. Because if you don't understand that, you can't possibly determine whether isolated training is good. I think also, everybody believes that what, what happened also, and I hate to be like so defensive about the curver stuff. Is that <laughs> when, what, no, what, what, what happened was it was really bad interpretation of the guy's work, man. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah it happens you, all the time. It happens all the time, man. Especially, especially it pains me to say in America, it's terrible, mm -hmm. man. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you, when, when people start making videos of kids just like sitting there jogging and stepping over and, and doing, and they're doing it in line. But what they don't realize is, is that obviously to put a good training session on, of course, there's going to be a little bit of isolated training. But if you're a good coach, half a grain of salt, you know that you're quickly putting them into limited pressure. You're quickly putting them into pressure. You're encouraging them to try to at least set up the environment where, okay, if you've got two lines of kids going this way and you've got goals that are this way, then they're probably going to have to use a move to change direction to get from A to B. So you're manipulating the space so that you're encouraging that movement. But unfortunately, nobody made those types of interpretations or those types of videos. So yeah, a lot of the impression of the curver stuff is these guys just, you know, beating cones all the time. So Well, you're Tom, you're misunderstood. We're misunderstood. So many everybody people write entire books and their entire and the author is completely misunderstood of their <laughs> message. You're right. It, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. Know? Yeah, for, for whatever reason, you know, I, I wanted to mention on this topic of the repetition. Yeah, it's it's kind of common sense in many respects. And you yeah. would think that us as adults, we yeah. would naturally come to the conclusion that if you do something, the more often you do yeah. it, the better you're going to get at it. It becomes a habit. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it, and, and it becomes a habit. So anybody, everybody who has a job knows when you first started at that job, you sucked. Yeah. And you kept doing the job, you know, and six months go by, you're better. And a year goes by, you're better. And 10 years go by. Wow. I'm really good at flipping burgers. or I'm really good at being an accountant or I'm really good at, it, it's kind of common sense. So it's very strange when people come across saying, oh, this repetitive, non-pressure based action, like that's a waste of time. You're ruining Guys, what are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. What are we what are we talking about here? Yeah. How how who has gotten in your head that this is not a good use of your time? Now, it's nuanced. It's nuanced, Tom. 
it's it nuanced because for example, in one of our programs, one of the things that we say is we kind of cite Johan Cruyff saying, Hey, I don't care if you can juggle amazingly, I've you know, that. you can join, you can join the circus, you right. know, if you can juggle right. amazing, it doesn't make a great football player. That's right. So you have to be smart and strategic and understand the game as to where your re repetition should be allocated. If you are spending countless hours learning how to juggle versus maybe how to cut left or cut right or do a pirouette, okay, you're wasting your time. Okay. 100%. So you do need some expertise to say, hey, allocate this amount of time or resources and energy in this direction of unopposed, repetitive sort of skill work yes. versus this type. So there is something to be a conversation to be had there. But even that conversation, people don't want to hear. It's wild, dude. Yeah. Let me comment on one more thing uh, on, yeah. on the, uh, not the science, not the neuroscience at all, but the concept of acquiring skills early sure. versus, versus not being to able to acquire them later. Yep. You know, in so much of my work over the years, the, the past 10 years or so, I've had technical directors or general managers here in the United States of professional teams saying like, Gary, I understand like where you are coming from as to how to make good players, who's a good player and who's not a good player, because obviously I'm pitching them, you know, 16, 17, 19, 20 year olds to be part of their club as a professional. Yep. And the, the, there's a heavy bias towards the physical player versus the quote unquote skilled player, their philosophy, Tom is give me the the big fast strong guy yeah. and i will make him into a great player so and it is 180 degrees away from what i believe to be true and what i not only believe but i've heard firsthand and have experienced firsthand overseas others believe to be true it's no give me the skilled player and we will work him into becoming the top level professional footballer, the physical stuff. It's important. Don't get me wrong. It is important, but the primordial soup, the, the fundamental soup is the skill because that is not something that you can inculcate in a player once they're 16, 17, 20 years of age, like yeah. You, yeah. they're done. Yes. And here's somehow the Americans in particular, because now there are a lot of foreign um, born, trained, culture, uh, general managers and tech technical directors in MLS. But wow. by and large, the generation of Americans here who are technical directors, general managers, et cetera, they, they are still stuck in this mindset. Give yeah. me the athlete and I will make them the soccer player that we need. Yes. It's fucking backwards, man. 100%. <laughs> 100%. I 1 billion percent agree with everything you just said. Absolutely. And then it's so funny because, you know, a lot of, a lot of these young coaches want to play like Pep Guardiola, the, you know, the Barcelona way. And, and even a guy like Pep, who is, for transparency, my favorite coach in the world, Pep says it best, man. And that's why I have it as my, my wallpaper on the back of my, on, on my Twitter page. And that is, is when he was asked in a book, you know, what kind of players are you looking for when you're trying to bring them into your team? He says, it's very simple. I look for one type of player, players that can beat players one versus one, defenders, mm -hmm. forward, midfielders. I can teach all the other stuff, but I can't 
teach that at those ages. And that's it. And they don't understand. I guess it's just, you know, a lack of understanding of development. Um, but it's the same thing, too. I was here in Japan for 10 years. I was Japan has an under 12 national select team. It's, it's, it's not an all year thing, but we go out and the, and the JFA supports everything, J League, and we pick 16 little 12 year olds and we take them to a tournament. Well, I did that for 10 years here in Japan. I was the head coach. And we would bring them traditionally to the uh, San Diego Surf Cup. It's a nice tournament. Yeah, and for I, sure. I, and, for, and these are 11-year-olds because they're playing under 12. I would just traditionally, it was very simple, my criteria. If you were the best technical players at the time, normally that would catch my eye. And I would be to, and we would go to the tournament. And what would happen would be I'd wind up picking 16 kids that were all just their best players on their team. They're all game players. And they didn't have specifically roles. That, so I had to actually mold into uh, taking players and, and asking them to play in defense for the first time ever. They'd never played. Or play as a forward where maybe they played as well. And it was a real wide awakening for me because we didn't go and we didn't great, get great results. But our team was the most popular team in the tournament because everybody liked to watch them because they were so good technically they played with just such a wonderful style of the way that they played and a lot of these players actually went on to play and so it was uh you know do i pick a team that we're going to win at all costs and get a big guys and fast guys and this that no i went out and i basically tried to pick the players who i thought that i could mold it so it goes exactly what you're talking about right that can, if I had a choice to, 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 to pick players like that at those youngest ages, because again, the priority was not to come home with that big trophy. It was to come home with players who were going to have learned certain things in certain moments to be able to take that back and build on. So, yeah, I mean, the way that you, you explained it is much better than I could have explained it, but you're right. I mean, a lot of coaches and they just don't understand, you know, what their priorities are, what they're, I think in Europe, the, the level of coaching is so much better now obviously, that when I'm around guys from that I have friends from Ajax or Gank or Dortmund or these things, they, it really has changed remarkably where when those guys after the weekend and the results, they sit around and they shoot the bull, they're not really talking about the results so much. They're talking about certain moments in the games. They might have lost 3-0, but they found out something and they were, had some teaching moments. And that's obviously the, the way that you want to approach coaching, right? But yeah, everything you said, I'm no, just, no. I'm a hundred. Well, yeah. So, so there's the youth side that yeah. has that philosophy, but, but I was mostly referring to the professional side where yeah. they're deciding who to make a professional or who to elevate as a professional. Yeah. And that's just another great filter yeah. that exists here in, in the States. It, is it the same in Japan or in Japan? Do they ascribe a, a higher value to the quote unquote skilled player versus the physical player at yeah. the pro level at the yeah. pro level uh, i i yes and no the good the good thing about japan is is that we don't lack good technical players so they're everywhere yeah so it makes sense Austin, to make the differentiation is going to be a stronger mm -hmm. or more physical player like that it's funny because i just i just one of my best friends is the top agent here in japan he's not, he's mm -hmm. like the number one guy and um, my son is of high school age, so without getting into too many particulars, my son, my, my buddy who, he, he's not just an agent, but he's one of my best friends. So he's got a whole different insight into professional players and developing them. And so he was giving my son 
um, advice like yesterday, literally. That's why it's a good, uh, good timing for this conversation. My son's, yeah, off the charts technically. There's no problem. He's very good. Mm-hmm. But he's telling him, dude, you got to start working on that upper body, that physical strength, because now you're going to go in with professionals that are, you know, 25, 26, 28. He's 17 years old. You got no problem technically. You're a smart player. Now, physically, you're going to get beat up off the ball. So yep. in Japan here, I think there's a, there, there's a, uh, there's always that kind of in our minds that play because the image of Japanese players is they're small, they're skinny, they're good technically. But um, yeah, I think I had, I, I had your question, but yeah. So here in Japan, it, it, it is a little bit the opposite because we've got, you know, plentiful players that are technically often the difference is going to be, well, is that guy a pretty strong, fast, you know, good in the air. Yeah. That kind of stuff. So, yeah. No, and, it makes sense. And, and, and I'm going to have to connect with your friend at some point. You're going to have to introduce me to him. Yeah. And well, that, you know, that's the thing is that it's funny again, and I won't say any names here, but I've got a bunch of agent friends, right? And not mm-hmm. my friend that I'm talking about yesterday, but another agent was talking to me the other day and he sent me a message here and he told me he's got a lot of Japanese players. And he said, recently I had offers from three MLS clubs for some of his mm. Japanese players, but he said none of the players wanted to go to America. So the point mm. I'm trying to make is, is that, yeah, there's a problem because of the perception. And I'm sure that there's some great American kids who could come here and do well. But unfortunately, that perception, of, you know, for, 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 for Japanese, it's the Brazilians, South Americans, you got to be, or the Eastern Europeans, there's a lot of Croatians, Bosnians, Serbians that have played here. We don't get the typical, very rarely English players come here. We'll, you won't find French players, Spanish, because we got Iniesta and we've got a couple of others, but that, but it's unusual. You know, it, yeah. again, culturally, Japan has more in common with Brazil and South America because of the traditional old trading routes hundreds of years ago. Mm. That that's where they sent it. So the, the largest population of Japanese living outside Japan are in Peru and Brazil. So again, it's a lot of things, you know, but yeah, I I'm happy to connect you to my buddy, whatever. You no, might. no, it's super fascinating. So it's yeah. Uh, the cultural component again, reigns supreme in yeah. many cases. It's it just, does. it does. You have your perceptions of what is a good beliefs, fit. Well, beliefs as well. You yeah. Know, what is a good fit versus what is not a good fit. And, and that's not to say there's any negative to that because some yeah. people might be nowadays, oh, you're prejudiced or they're prejudiced or no guys like this is just, I mean, culture is culture, Tom. Yeah. Culture is culture. Let's accept the reality for what it is. So has it been an American in you're Japan? In a, and I'm at a, okay, listen to this. The first ever American to ever play in the J league is Dan Kalichman. So Dan's a, Dan's a friend of mine. I actually, he'll admit it. I got him his first cap for the U.S. national team actually years ago. But yeah, he he was here before the J-League started in 91, 92. And his team went into the J-League. He played one season and then he went to the MLS. I think he was mm. at LA Galaxy, New England Revolution. Yep. And now he's the assistant at Galaxy now, right? He's one of them, I guess. But yeah, he, so he was the first. There's been a couple of other kids but not like of the traditional national team. They were here. Maybe they were like half American, half Japanese, but it hasn't been, uh, to be honest with you, no, I mean, not really. There has been a few, 
But even I didn't know who they were because they weren't big name players and they were like Japanese Americans and they, they grew up here. But God, it sounds like a challenge, goal. man. Yeah, I know. I think, I think what it is is that it's getting with a good agent who can actually, you know, present a certain particular player that a team wants or needs, right? Yeah. Um, but I've always scratched my head and thought, yeah, why well, there could be more playing here. Obviously, we have a few Japanese that have played in the, in the MLS. They've done okay. Um, but the, right now, the big thing is, I mean, the Europeans are stealing all of our best young players, man. The Ger no because Germany, we had such a good kind of, you know, I mean, almost the entire national team plays in Europe now. And, you know, they play at big clubs. Look at, look at, look at, look at Kubo now at, at, at Real Sociedad, but he's kind of an outlier, I think. But there's a lot of good players. I mean, even from our, our schools, um, just because of the sheer numbers of kids that participate, this past World Cup, the number six, number eight, number 10, they all come from our schools. And, and again, that's not to say that we developed them. It's just that now we're at a tipping point where there's 150 of these schools all over the country. So obviously the more serious kids' parents are going to pay to go to a better quality school. So basically they wind up at our schools. But yeah, I mean, the, the other interesting thing that I think that I've been able to benefit from is being able to work and observe and understand that journey, as I call it, from grassroots to professional. To be able to see kids who have, you know, either come through some of our programs that actually go on to, you know, play in the World Cup on a women's side, win World Cup. The girl who was my assistant for three years, who we would bring teams to the, to the, to the Surf Cup to. So the under 12 men's team, uh, boys team, I was the head coach, but the under 12 girls team was a former player. And she went on to become the under 17 national team head coach that won the World Cup. And then she was the, uh, the senior world uh, national team and Olympic head coach. So I was able to see that trajectory. And again, not to any disrespect to the Japanese coaching fraternity here, but bro, the coaching here is not as good as people think it is. And, and so, and, and I think the reason, I think the reason, oh, I'm not, 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 I think this is my strong opinion. The reason that we do so well is purely on that aspect that we develop really really solid technically good players and so even when we won the women's under 17 world cup and again i say this with great fondness for her name is asako takakura who i worked for three years and she went to that to bro check this out it was her first aside from taking a bunch of 12 year olds to the surf cup her next serious role as a head coach was the under 17 national team head coach so she had little to no experience, but yeah. she went to the World Cup, wins the World Cup, beats Spain in group play, and then beats Spain in the final. And they score 23 goals, four, and they allowed one. But here's the, here's the, the I don't want it to be seen as, a, as, as how I can say it, but here it is. I have a pretty good feeling that whoever we had sent as the head coach probably would have got a similar result. Because at those younger ages, technique wins out much more than anything else at the young ages, at the young age. Then it didn't. So what happened was this poor girl, she wins the World Cup. She becomes, you know, like this, you know, unbelievable figure in Japan. Of course, she's got to be the head coach of the national senior team. And bro, couldn't get a result for like seven, eight years, two cycles. And then finally, they just retire. Olympics yeah. didn't win a game. So that that's Japan, you know, and, and that's the reality of football here. But 
you know, the reality is, is that at the youngest ages, yeah, techniques seem to win over a lot of times. But then once they get a little bit caught up, physical, mental coaching comes into te- to, to place. That's where, you know, things go. And, and, and it's being able to connect those dots. You know, I would have never been able to see these kind of or have these kind of opinions or beliefs. And I might be wrong. They're just my beliefs and opinions. But connecting all those dots and seeing what's happening in grassroots and seeing here in Japan, the level of training, bro, if you came here to watch a lot of the youth <laughs> train, you would, you would be shocked. You yeah. would be shocked. <laughs> but yet, but yet, but yet our players are like the most sought after players in Europe right now. Japanese players are. And then, well, so Tom, it's raw number. It's raw numbers too. Yeah, it is. But he, but here's the last thing I'll say. And this is the contradiction where people don't understand. As I mm. say, well, the coaching is terrible here, but we develop wonderful players. So that's the whole kind of the oxymoron or the the disconnect. So people say to me, well, dude, if you're presenting, you know, to producing, developing so many players and the coaching is so bad, well, well, because technical skills are rarely the result of coaching. It's that love affair with the ball and the culture and the early and they train here. The the downside of the Japanese system here is that they overtrain, they overwork, and we have lots of injuries. That's the reality. I can't hide the fact. My son, a 17-year-old, in April, in uh, March, had to go into the hospital and have a, 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 a screw put into the fifth metatarsal, which is a very common injury here in Japan because it's overtraining. Mm. A lot of our players, Kagawa Dorman had it. A lot of players, even Messi, uh, Iniesta, a lot of these players. So there's that, I don't know if you're familiar with that fifth metatarsal fracture right here. They call it a Jones fracture. Bro, I didn't realize how common it is until my son had it. Unbelievably mm. common stress fracture on the fifth metatarsal on the foot. Because especially players that are technically and they're dribblers because they're constantly stopping, starting, turning, changing direction. So they're putting pressure on that fifth metatarsal. So Messi has screws in his feet. Uh, a lot of players do. But anyway, a lot mm. of Japanese players have a lot of injuries, so. I'll go. I'll. I'll. I'll stop my kind of negativity on Japanese football because I love it. But I'm no, no, Tom. It's good. Try to it's be good. Actually honest about what's happening here. There ain't no master coaching going on here. Shit. In fact, <laughs> we, have, we have. We have. Listen to this. We've got an AFC. We've got 48 countries. They come over here by the busload to try right, to, to find out what you're doing, and you guys aren't doing. And anything then, aside from uh, aside from grassroots sort of uh, yeah. fundamental skill work yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so but, but but what that tells me though is that the one thing japan is getting right is that those youngest ages they're mastering the basic building block mm-hmm. to be able to be coached and do well yeah, yeah. that's it yeah well, well tom listen i'm on the same page with you dude it's <laughs> it's he i'm he, here in japan I'm yeah. here in America and it's kind of similar, but different in, in America. It's like, Hey motherfuckers, we have 20 million Latino Americans here yeah. who have all this fundamental skill. Let's fucking make it happen somehow. But they say no. And, yeah. and, and on the girl that you mentioned that specific example of doing good at surf cup and then getting to U 17s and doing great and then moving on it's, yeah. and why it's wasn't the coaching. It's just, if you have good material, yes. it's going to work out for you by and large, no matter who the coach is. Sure, if you're Pep, if you're Mourinho, if you're 
Klopp, if you're Bielsa, if you're all these high-level elite managers, I think they can squeeze the orange a little bit better than others. And that gives you that two or three or 4% more where that makes a difference at the top, 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 top level. But you need the raw material. And I've said it here in the States so many times. People get excited when the senior men's national team does well in CONCACAF or the, the U-20s do well in CONCACAF and maybe put on a decent performance with one of the world powers, the U-17s. It's like, guys, I could hire my grandmother who knows nothing about football, yes. give her the same player pool or, or the same roster, and she randomly picks the, and you're going to get the similar results. It's yeah. the material. By and large, it is the material, Tom, which I think is your main point here. Yes. If you have good material, you're going to get good results. One hundred. And how do you get good material? You have yes. to start it at the top of the funnel, yes. which is the base of the pyramid. Yes. Now, I don't want people to leave with the impression <laughs> that the other stuff doesn't matter, right? Yes. It does matter right. to squeeze the orange a little bit better, but, yep. and you need, you just, Tom, listen, the bottom line is you need some sort of excellence cradle to grave. Yes. Some sort of excellence. Cause Japan might have great material, but if, in my opinion, if you had, say, Pep take over the top level, he might be able to squeeze another extra percent or two out of the entire national yep. player pool. And that might propel you to an extra game at the World Cup or yeah. an extra. Yes, I hear you. Yep. Yeah, I think that last mile yep. has some relevance, but not as much as the base material. Well, well, well um, here's another part though, too. So, and this is probably, this is probably, we should have a whole nother, another, talk. yeah, we will. But that I believe that the biggest differentiation between the Pep Guardiola's, the Josie Mourinho's, the Bielsa's, these types of coaches are, and we're talking now, we're talking high performance, right? We're talking that yeah. really elite of the best of the best which is really only a handful of really, really top coaches that are good at this, that are the serial winners, probably Arsene Wenger as well. Um, mm -hmm. And that is that ability to manage the fear level of these top players. There's a guy that I follow. His name is Drew Broughton. I don't know if you ever heard of him or not. This guy is fascinating, man. I've been studying his work. He's a, he played in the Premier League for 17 years. He was very inconsistent. He was a prodigy. Everybody thought he was going to be the next next striker for England. He became addicted and and and, and you know uh, just all kinds of vices. And he went into you know kind of a rehab. But the good news is he came out the end. And this guy is fascinating, man. I'll, I'll I'll send you his name and you can check it out. But his whole philosophy is this: when you look at the the best top performers in the world, and we're talking mo most sports, Lewis Hamilton. Tiger Woods, uh, the Messies, Ronaldo, the Venus girls, what he says that they all have. And we're seeing it now with the boy at Real Madrid who just scored the big goal at the Classico. Well, what's his name? Uh, yes. He says that what they all have is what he calls a healthy level of disrespect. And these, yeah. because they haven't lost their sense of self and they have authenticity. 
But he goes on to say this. They're the easiest people in the world to manage until you cross them. And mm. then they lose it. And you look back at Messi when he played against Holland in the World Cup going up, remember, afterwards. You look at you look at Ronaldo when he felt he was disrespected by the coach. You look at and it's it's very very interesting. And I think that a lot of these top and Pep is surely the guy, man. Remember the big thing with De Bruyne where De Bruyne is telling him fuck off on that. He loves that kind of player. He loves that kind of player. And so anyway, well, I don't want to go off on a tangent here because we're probably getting ready to close up a bit. But yeah, it's it. But there's such a there's there's coaches try to lump football into one big and the reality is is that what's happening at grassroots here in japan when anybody's trying to dissect why japan's so good just happened over the weekend fifa wrote an article talking about the big panacea and the big reason that japan is so good is because they have a very healthy high school and uh the university uh, uh programs where they play like just hundreds of games that's one part of it they they and the, the one part that a lot of people really avoid talking about, usually in most countries, is is that grassroots part because it's the most misunderstood part of the game, man. People don't understand it. They just think that the kid shows up to a good academy and then off he goes. But anyway, I've taken two pages of notes here, too, from you talking. So <laughs> I got a lot out of this. I got to be honest. Yeah. No, Tom, we can. Yeah, we can bow out here for sure. It's it's two hours and we can talk all night long. I, I can envision us being out camping campfire and just, Absolutely. and not sleeping, you know, going back and forth on these sorts of things. Let's, let's um, tentatively say, Hey, there's a part two coming at Definitely. some point. Definitely. Um, but this has been enlightening because I think this format is conducive to getting folks to understand you better. Sure. And I to understand the philosophy better, because as you well know, when you post on social media, you are going to get attacked left and right with people who do not understand what it is that you're trying to, to uh, frankly, help people with. So you could probably tell because I know you're on social media. I know you follow me and I'm hoping that you're going to agree with me. But if you I have actually become a little bit tiny bit more disciplined with what I put out there these days compared to what I was doing before, because I understand there's a lot of misunderstanding and I'm trying to be uh, more tolerant. Let's put it that way. Which, which is, which is a topic for another day, but sure. It's, it's unfortunately very sad and the path that so many of us go down. Yes. Meaning if somebody has expertise in something and they start, um, I don't know, trying to help others and, and write down what it is that they think that they know and they get all this pushback. So many folks who know something about a domain, when they get the negativity for yeah. months and years on end, they end up saying, you know what? Fuck it. I'm taking my ball. I'm going home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, luck to, good luck to you all. So it's yeah. almost like a disservice to the world that is yeah. happening yep. because experts will just close the book and say, fuck you. I'm yeah. out. Yeah. Good luck, yeah. you know, yeah. enjoy your trajectory there. And I think it is something that needs to change, Tom. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the solution. And, and the folks who end up losing out are the folks who criticize. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because they end up, they end up not learning yep. and they end up 
not scaring experts. Experts aren't scared. They're very self-confident in what it is that they know. It's just experts aren't willing to put up with the nonsense and they'll just say, okay, fuck you. Well, I, I think there's a certain element out there that likes to attack instead of understand, right? So they just can't wait to get out. And, but, you know, the funny part is though, is that, and I don't know if you, you find it the same way, but 90, 95% of my interactions are really super positive where, you know, a few it's of true. them aren't. And, and, but obviously, you know, people start to focus on, cause I, I get buddies of mine who that, that are friends of mine that'll send me, yo, dude, that guy's like a, a dick. And I'm like, well, dude, that's like the one out of like a, a thousand contacts. And why are you focusing on just the one guy who's a bit of a dick? But yeah, anyway, it is what it is. It's, well, it, well, it's worse when you have high profile authority figures who shouldn't sure. be authorities sure. attacking you yeah. because then, then that's a big issue. True. True. But okay, man. Hey. Thank you so much, Tom. It was an absolute pleasure. I'm glad we were able to do this. We have not spoken one-on-one -on -one ourselves. Um, let's do a part two. I hope, and I, I was sincere about this a while ago, I hope when I visit Japan, I can meet you face-to-face, -face, or if you visit LA, I know you were here last time, but I, you know, it was yep. hard to connect. Let's meet in person at some point, man. I will be, and, and I'm gonna also insist that when you and I sit down, hopefully in, in, in an evening time that you'll have a very nice, fine bottle of Malbec. No okay. question about it, my friend. Cause I know that you, you fancy that a bit. I'll call in the favors from my friends down South in Argentina. All right, my friend, this was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I look forward to, uh, this being continued. Probably. Thanks brother. Have a great weekend, man. Oh, the weekend is over. It's Monday for you. <laughs> it's it's Have Monday. a great weekend, man, and we'll reconnect soon. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you for listening. A reminder for coaches, you can get both the free and premium coaching programs at 343coaching.com. Don't let anyone tell you your teams can't win by playing dominant possession-based football while also developing individual players to the highest levels. Nonsense. We've proved it at every single level and so have hundreds of serious member coaches across the country. Now that we've moved on to the pro level, we're delivering everything we've learned in the program. Don't wait and continue delaying getting on a proven path. And parents, 343masterclass.com is where you want to go to get a working compass for navigating the American soccer landscape with your player. It's pretty bad out there, but let our experience guide you. Lastly, if you're coaching 7v7, We've got you covered there as well. Go to 7v7coaching.com. Until next time, cheers everyone and keep building.